Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is T.J. Smith, president and executive director of Foxfire and the overseer of the Foxfire Museum and Heritage Center, the Foxfire Magazine, the Foxfire Approach to Teaching and Learning, and the Foxfire Book Series. He is the editor of Foxfire Story, Oral Tradition in Southern Appalachia, which is published by our friends at Anchor. TJ, welcome to the program. Hey, how's it going, Jason? Hey, great. It's an honor to have you here. And TJ, the first question I have for you is one that I am asking every author I've interviewed lately, and it is a two-part question. The first part is, how are you responding to the coronavirus? And secondly, how are you approaching the marketing of this book during these strange times? Um, So, on a personal level, um, handling it fairly well. Um, I think for a lot of us who are uh, parents and who are also people who are essential in some capacity are sort of dealing with balancing um, becoming homeschool teachers and still working mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, all the things that come with that but we're you know we're in a fairly rural area fairly spread out um, we have been certainly limiting you know our travel and going to the store and, and trying to make those trips count as much as possible um, from the perspective of Foxfire, um, the museum has been closed to visitation uh, for almost a full month now. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, we had been limiting visitation and then uh, and, and just sort of heightening our, our cleaning policies and things like that. But um, so we've, we've shut down our physical museum, but as an organization, myself and all of our staff, I've been doing a really good job of turning our energies towards providing a lot of uh, free digital content, mm-hmm. uh, putting out uh, videos and blog posts, and um, um, uh, my uh, co-host Cami Aaron's Cami uh, Aaron's. She's an assistant curator at Foxfire. Mm-hmm. Uh, she and I have a podcast called It Still Lives. So we've been doing some extra episodes of that podcast to give people, you know, something to do and and a resource for. Uh, learning new things about this great region of Southern Appalachia, um, but also a lot of instructional things on like gardening and um, uh, going out and foraging for wild spring foods and, and, and plant identification and just all manner of things. Um, so really pushing our efforts towards that and, and putting out a bunch of material for folks to engage, uh, engage Foxfire in ways that don't necessarily include coming to the museum. Um, so, and as far as um, promotion of the book, yes, this has drastically changed that approach. Um, we had a lot of in-person, um, not just signings, but sort of community conversations and presentations about oral tradition and, and the storytelling tradition in Southern Appalachia as it relates to the book and, and otherwise. Uh, but since then, I've been trying to uh, find you know digital means of promoting the book this podcast being one of them um, uh, but then also coordinating with some of our partners that we had planned live events with to do something like 
um, Instagram live streams or Facebook live streams or things like that. So, uh, again, yeah, everything's going towards digital, virtual versus in person and, uh, you know, getting the opportunity to sit in front of, you know, 20, 40, whatever uh, amount of people and, and talk and, and have these. I love having these larger community conversations around books, but um, we can do that virtually. You know, thankfully, we live in a time when we have technology and um, it's it's more accessible than it's ever been. It's not as accessible as we would like it to be, but certainly it's more accessible than it's ever been. So uh, trying to do our best to take advantage of those opportunities. Right. Thanks, TJ. And um, I can identify with a lot that you said in North Carolina here, bookstores are essential businesses. So I'm here working every day, but I do have a son at home who just turned four. So my wife, who is able to work at home through her university job, is also being a school teacher, um, amongst other things. And man, it's, you know, crazy world out there right now, isn't it? It is. It's, it's, it's hard on everybody. Um, you know, uh, I've got two boys, 12 and 10, and they've had varying degrees of, of schoolwork. And, um, you know, they're trying to grasp the concepts. And at the same time, I feel like I'm trying to grasp the concepts mm-hmm. uh, so that I can help them with instruction. Like, when was the last time you did, you know, um, uh, fractional expressions and things like that. <laughs> like when right. I get to sit down with a math book, I'm just like, ah, let me reel back in time in my brain, you know, 30 <laughs> years and remember how to do this, how to express fractions. <laughs> so, yeah, no doubt. It's been a long uh, time. Um, yeah. Yeah, so thanks, TJ. Hey, in your introduction, I believe I said the word Foxfire around half a dozen times. Uh, can you tell us what Foxfire is? Yeah, sure. So, uh, Foxfire is a student-led, community-based cultural journalism project that started in 1966 in an English classroom at the Raven Gap Micucci School, mm-hmm. uh, which at the time was a split public-private institution. So, just to kind of give you a, a visual of what of what this space is, uh, Raven County is the northeasternmost county in the state of Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bulk of our county is national forest. It's a very rural, isolated section of the state, very mountainous. And so, uh, at the time uh, these students were attending Raven Gap, you you had uh, issues with travel, um, <laughs> getting kids to. Uh, the county high school, which was on the south side of the county, so kids who lived on the north side of the county who were public school students had to attend this private school because that was their really their only option to, to be able to get to school. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so uh, these these were students uh, at the Raven Gap School, and they were challenged by their English teacher uh, to go out into their community and just start talking to people about their experiences. Um, and, and document those experiences. Um, at first, just sort of taking notes, and then later they, they brought in recording uh, devices to help them with that. But uh, when they went out in the community and started talking to people, they learned um, that the people around them had a lot more depth than even they could imagine. And, and you know, they thought they knew their grandparents until they really sat down and started talking to their grandparents mm-hmm. and learned that, you know, beyond just being grandma and grandpa or whatever, uh, these folks had these immense um, experiences, uh, very um, extreme depth of knowledge um, and um, abilities around things like woodworking and, 
blacksmithing, uh, instrument making, musicianship, um, all sorts of all sorts of things that we kind of lump into this larger category of what we you know traditional arts or folklore. Um, and so when they came back to the classroom with this material, they they you know they wrote their uh, expository essays or whatever, uh, and then they were asked you know well this is some interesting material is there a way that we could share this publicly and the students came up with the idea of putting together a magazine um and so they laid out and published the first foxfire magazine in 1967 in the spring Mm -hmm. um and that magazine just caught fire i mean it was wildly popular um and because this area even at that time was already being visited by a lot of folks from the cities like Asheville and Atlanta would come here to you know enjoy the rivers and lakes and the wilderness uh, some of those magazines went back to Atlanta and Asheville and these other cities in the southeast and they started getting the students started getting um, mailed in requests to become you know for subscriptions people wanted to subscribe to the magazine and so with that um, with that interest, but also the checks that were coming in as well, they were able to fund additional issues of the magazine. And uh, by 1971, they were invited by E.P. Dutton to do the first Foxfire book, uh, which sold half a million copies in the first six months and was a New York Times bestseller. Mm. And that, fir- that first book um, included articles on how to build a log cabin from scratch like going out and like cutting down the trees and and hewing the wood and notching it and building a cabin uh but also um material on planting by the signs of the zodiac like how to plant a garden by the signs of the zodiac um wild medicinal herbs and spring plants that can be consumed edible plants uh and then a, a very um probably the most famous article or the most popular article uh, on moonshining Mm. and how to build a moonshine still and the art of moonshining. Um, So uh, that, that the popularity for this book really came about because too, at that time in the early seventies was the back to the land movement. And a lot of people at that time had, were interested in sort of, you know, leaving the cities and going back to rural spaces and and living off the grid and creating uh in some instances communal spaces um and this book became sort of like the manual for how to do that mm-hmm. um since that time we have published 12 volumes of that main book series um and then an additional 12 what we call companion books and this latest book is sort of uh, a new a start of a new series that we're we're beginning uh, that are uh, books that are more focused on a singular topic um, in this case it being on oral tradition um, and the the thing the next thing two things I'll add about what Foxfire is so the royalties from that first book gave the students money and they were asked you know what would you like to do with the you know with this newfound revenue that we have. And the students elected to buy some land and create a museum and uh, communal learning space for the community and for the school, um, which they had. They were starting to have other classes beyond just this English class. Um, they were doing music classes around traditional music from the area. They were doing uh, ecology classes that were exploring um, specific flora and fauna to this region. So they wanted to have their own space to do that. And uh, additionally, too, in, in, in the course of, of conducting these interviews, 
people were giving them all kinds of things like artifacts <laughs> like you know cider presses and woodworking tools and things for a blacksmith forge and they wanted a space to store those and to, ex- and to interpret and exhibit them um, and so they bought the land and then they went started the process of identifying um, log structures in need of preservation um, that they could relocate to this property the first of which was a grist mill that was just down the road from uh, Airy Carpenter, uh, best known as Aunt Airy in the books. Uh, she's she's featured in the introduction of book one, uh, right at the beginning. She's um, uh, trying to get a hog uh, eyeball out of a hog's head because she wants to make souse meat, hmm. and the students are walking up on her recording as they walk up on her trying to do this. And she ends up passing her knife to a student and asking him if, she, if he could help her. <laughs> um, and then the other thing that came out of this this project is a uh, uh, an approach to teaching and learning that at the time was very revolutionary, and that was this idea of a student led or learner led experiential uh, learning approach. Uh, you know, today we talk about experiential learning. You mentioned that your wife worked at works at the university um i'm sure she's familiar and you're familiar too that experiential learning is is practically everywhere at every level in education now um but at the time it was not something that was commonplace and 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 foxfire was a pioneer in that approach to teaching and learning um experiential learning um intergenerational learning and then something we call social emotional learning that's great, TJ. Thank you so much. And a little bit more about Foxfire as a whole. Uh, you speak of your dream job in this collection, Foxfire Story. And after you mentioned the disappointment of realizing you may never be able to fly through the clouds and shoot laser beams out of your fists, uh, you state that your actual dream job is the one that you have found yourself in right now. And you mentioned the pleasure of going to the archives to study information on something like curing meats and walking away hours later, having instead gone down a rabbit hole involving stories about painters which we learn in this glossary means panthers uh first what a magical place this must be and second can you tell us more about your personal role in the day-to-day operations at foxfire yeah so um as the executive director i'm i'm sort of the lead administrator so there's a lot of things that aren't that fun and exciting that come with that such as you know managing payroll and making sure that uh bills are paid and and that uh uh, contracts are being signed and honored and that sort of thing managing grants um all the sort of the the bureaucratic elements of what comes with running a nonprofit. Mm. um but the 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 other hat that i get to wear um in this position and this is the first position I've really been able to do this is as a folklorist mm-hmm. um, and uh, as such being able to, to be a part of a, a 50 plus year grassroots folk life collections program is really uh, where you know that dream that dream element comes in to play um, you know uh, as a graduate student as an undergraduate student even um, you know Foxfire was a tremendous resource for me um, when trying to understand um, the folk life and folk traditions of Southern Appalachia. Um, and it's a region where I grew up. Um, I grew up in the county just south of where I live now in Raven. So I grew up in Habersham County. Um, so being able to come home and uh, play a role in the interpretation of, uh, uh, you know, 
a culture that I belong to and a culture that has been often maligned and misrepresented in media um, is is really a great honor and uh, one of the best parts about my job. Um, So, you know, I get to... Oh, do all sorts of things. I get to work with the students, which is great, working with young people. Um, I taught in the university system of Georgia for nearly a decade at two different institutions um, and uh, left teaching in 2014. Um, and so being able to do that again with with our Foxfire students is really wonderful. Um, getting to uh, get into the archive and uh, dig through all this amazing material that we have for the purposes of you know putting together a book or just putting together a blog post is, is really great. Um, getting to, to play in a blacksmith shop, <laughs> getting to go in and, and uh, you know, one of the first things I did when I got here was I had our curator, Barry Styles teach me how to blacksmith a J-hook, um, which is a very simple little um, hook that you make out of a 60-penny nail, but it's one of the first things that you can learn how to blacksmith. And then getting to teach that to both of my both of my boys is pretty cool, um, and uh, just also you know the big thing is it, it being able to um, uh, engage the community and and serve the community here locally, but also regionally. The larger Southern Central Appalachian community uh, has meant a lot to me, and and being able to do that um, from the seat is is pretty great. Absolutely. Thank you so much, TJ. Listeners, we are going to pause for a moment for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with TJ Smith. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story. that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with T.J. Smith, editor of Foxfire Story, oral tradition in Southern Appalachia, published by our friends at Anchor. T.J., sort of a broad question here. What do you think is the importance of narrative story and song in regards to making sense of the world? Um, I think that the narrative impulse is one of the most human things that unites us across uh, race across cultures across uh, you know any and all demographics um, we all have a ingrained desire to tell stories um, and and you know and that can be as simple as you know your child coming home from school and, and telling you a story about something that happened in their day or more refined as you know, telling a, a funny uh, anecdote or a, or a, a funny folk tale, um, but the narrative impulse is is just this indelible human quality that that unites us all, and it's something that I really think is important to to analyze and study. We we do learn a lot from one another through our stories, 
you know, if nothing else, we learned that we have a lot more in common than we don't. Um, this past July, um, just an interesting little anecdote. Um, I went to China as part of a, uh, a group of folklorists with the American Folklore Society as part of a um, ongoing American and Chinese relationship the American Folklore Society and the China Folklore Society. They've mm-hmm. been doing this for about a decade now, mm-hmm. a little bit over a decade. And, you know, one year American folklorists go there and then another the next year Chinese folklorists come to the United States. Mm-hmm. So I got to spend 10 days in Guangzhou, China mm-hmm. and interacting with, with Chinese folklorists and many of whom did not speak language and I don't, you know, did not speak English and I don't speak Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, through through whatever you know hand hand gestures and and having you know interpreters nearby we were able to share a lot of stories and 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 the stories that we shared have had a lot of commonalities and and it was a really you know almost from the get-go um having these exchanges with with folks you know half a world away was a great gave me great insight into just how similar our experiences are and how you know we, we share similar hopes and dreams for our children we share similar fears for the world or, or we share similar anxieties uh and celebrations and all these things that just you know that make us make us human and um but also you know hearing um chinese folklorists uh share uh folklore from from the various parts of china that they were working and seeing the similarities in their stories and in their traditions um that were analogous to the stories and traditions here in southern appalachia it was you know it really a unique experience and something that underscored and and um i think supported the argument that you know we are all we all have these shared experiences and we all have this shared desire to tell our stories and the stories that we tell are, are very similar. Right. Thank you so much, TJ. Um, I want to ask you about the origins of the Foxfire um, project. Is there an original story uh, that was recorded back in 1966 and 67 at the beginning that you look back on as a Genesis story or the Foxfire story to begin all Foxfire stories? Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know that there is. Um, you know, one of the things that we did publish in this collection was the first, inter- one of the first interviews and that was um, an interview with Sheriff Luther Rickman who was recounting uh his story of a bank robbery um that he was you know a sheriff in town during the bank robbery and just you know shared his experience and you know i don't know that 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 story did anything more for the program than another one i think it's more of a you know it's just the a culmination of all these things coming together at once that kept and held the students' interest that, you know, every time they talked to somebody, they learned something new. Every time they, they sat down with, with a relative or somebody from the community that they thought they knew, they learned so much more about that person just from that person's stories and the things that they were willing to share with the students. Um, you know, if, if you had to find a nexus 
it's really the broader sense of an intergenerational sharing. And I think that's what makes the Foxfire program so unique is that it is based in this idea of young people, you know, high school age students who are still trying to figure out their place in the world and find, you know, where do they fit into not only their immediate community, but this larger global community. Um, uh, sitting down across from somebody who's got a lifetime of experience uh, and 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 those experiences helping the students to define that identity. Um, I think that's so key, and that was really what kept the program glowing and moving forward. Was that you know it doesn't matter which generation of Foxfire student, they all come to the same realization that there is a great deal of knowledge right in front of them. You know, right in their immediate community. And I think that sparks an interest to go and explore beyond the borders of their own community. Like, if there's that much here, how much more is out beyond here? And and what and how do those experiences jibe with one another? And, and you know, where are the similarities? What are the differences? And what can I learn from them? And that really is, I think, the the nexus of the program. Right. Thank you so much, uh, TJ. And in this book. Um, Foxfire story, oral tradition in Southern Appalachia. You break the stories in the collection down into several categories. There are legends, folk tales, jests, anecdotes, songs, humor, pranks, and folk beliefs. This last term interested me as you state that folk beliefs are what many people refer to as superstitions. Um, why the preference for the term folk beliefs? Well, you know, to me, uh, superstition is sort of derogatory. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a pejorative that um, suggests that something is backwards mm-hmm. or silly. You know, you know, you you're just being superstitious, or that's just superstition, and you know, as though you're just glossing over whatever the thing is. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the folks who who practice these folk beliefs. This is not backwards or silly. This is, uh, you know, akin to some either, you know, you could say it's akin to religion or ritual, uh, but it's certainly, it's something that they believe deep down is true. And they generally have some sort of supporting evidence for it to be true, usually through practice. (laughs) It's something they've done and they've seen results. So they will continue to do it because they have seen results. Um, you know, one of the examples I give is, you know, the idea of planted by the signs. And, you know, for the folks who practice that approach to planting their, their vegetable garden every year, um, they, have, they have yielded results from that practice, and that's why they do it. Um, you know, folk belief that does not fulfill its promise is not carried forward. Uh, if something does not produce as it, as it should then it's often abandoned. But if it is practiced, you can you can bet that the people who are practicing that folk belief have garnered some value from it or it wouldn't it wouldn't be carried on. So to just to pass it off as superstition is not uh, valuing that belief system. It would be the same as saying that religion is superstition. Mm. Um, yeah, we, we hold religion in higher regard because of, you know, whatever societal perspectives or worldviews on religion, it gets placed in a higher echelon than something like folk belief. But the two, in my mind, are, are, are on equal, equal ground as far as it, 
it concerns the people who are practicing those beliefs. Right. And I also want to ask you about legends, because you open the chapter on legends by writing, we hear the term legend tossed around a lot, and then you cite Michael Jordan as an example. (laughs) And as we sit here recording today, the first two parts of a 10-part documentary on Michael Jordan and the 97-98 Bulls just aired to gigantic ratings and buzz. So it seems like the legend of Michael Jordan has resurfaced, not that it ever went anywhere. Um, But why cite Michael Jordan, and what do you mean? mean by the term legend uh, i cite michael jordan because i'm a basketball fan yeah um and you know i i i'm being a little tongue-in-cheek in that introduction because i think you know um the the term does get thrown around a lot and then you know not in the far too far distant past but the show how i met your mother there was a character that you may remember that liked to, ter- to toss around the term legendary. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know, I think it's important for us to recognize the root of that and, and what legend is in the context of folk tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and that is that these are, you know, tales that are told from the perspective of a teller to an audience where both parties um, believe in the truth around the legend. Uh, and I say around it because, you know, like anything in the oral tradition, accuracy is a matter of perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and truth is, is also a matter of perspective because it's, it's based in memory and based in telling and, and this sort of thing. But for, for people who, who participate in, in sharing legends, those legends are, are held to, to be believed uh, as truth um, and in some cases people play with that in the context of storytelling where it's kind of a wink and a nod uh, but in the true case of legends especially when you deal with um, uh, indigenous folks and, and within cultural groups the legends of those cultures and the legends of those groups um, they, they, they do hold true uh, they are, they do represent uh, a, a, a distance a distant truth um, that that, that it is real uh, but then you know you get into some of the more contemporary types of legends like urban legends which are also referenced in the book um, and the the belief in that legend um, is tied to the entertainment value of the legend itself and your ability to uh, enthrall an audience or frighten an audience. Um, you know, an audience could be, you know, whoever's sitting around the campfire. Um, but, uh, yeah, there, there is a certain level of understanding that this is, there is truth here in this. And we all, ha- you have to get the buy-in from your audience as a storyteller that, that they're going to walk away thinking, man, that really happened. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, who's, who's your favorite basketball team? Uh, the the late 1980s Detroit Pistons. Oh, the bad boys. The bad boys, that's right. Yeah, John yeah. Sally yeah. and Dennis Rodman. Uh, yeah, those, that was the Isaiah Thomas. Those guys were fun to watch. Right, fun right. to watch. We might hear more about them in this uh, Michael Jordan documentary coming up. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that you know, there was a period in basketball where it was you know that that era in, in the East was the Pistons, the Bulls, and the Celtics. 
Yeah. Um, just always buying, and then occasionally the Hawks. I had my heart broken a couple times too because I like Dominique Wilkins. I grew up in Georgia. I like the Hawks too, um, and had my heart broken a couple times in those in those Hawks, Celtics, and Hawks Pistons uh, conference championship games. So. Yeah, as a uh, Charlotte Hornets fan, heartbreak is something I've become very accustomed <laughs> to. Um, thank you, TJ. Finally, I want to circle back around to my first question about the coronavirus and COVID nineteen, and I'm hoping eventually to collect all of the um, author's answers to this question that I'm asking in some sort of oral history. And I understand that Foxfire is working on a project surrounding COVID-19 as well. Can you tell us about that and let us know how we can find more information out about this project? Yeah, sure. So we're, we're, we're hoping to collect or we're working to collect uh, people's um, just, you know, their, their, their oral histories about how they're dealing with with this situation in real time um and you know fortunately again going back to something i said earlier we live in a in a technological age where it's really easy to do that and so we're encouraging folks to either sit down by themselves uh with their phone and do a voice memo where they just sort of we, we give them some, some uh, questions, some prompts that they can answer, or they can just speak about, you know, their day-to-day and, and what they're dealing with. Or if they're quarantining or self-isolating with their families, it's a great opportunity for families to sit around and share with one another uh, while recording it, uh, you know, their experiences and their feelings about this moment of time. Um, part of this was inspired because of some historical records that we have in our archive that are, that are actually included in this book where we have a, a section on historical anecdotes and the example that we use are, are people recounting their experiences during the 1918 flu epidemic um, and you know collecting these kinds of experiences within a community or a region you you get sort of a nice um, a nice ethnography of that moment in time um, and how people are responding to it or how they responded to it. The, the difference being that when the students were recording the, the people's um, recollections of the 1918 flu epidemic, it was in 1973. So it was a substantial amount of time between you know, 1918 and when these folks were being interviewed. Um, and so we, would, we wanted to, to collect something in real time and then maybe, you know, 20, 30 years from now, come back to those folks or attempt to come back to those folks and have them record another interview with us um, remembering this time and place and comparing and having an opportunity to compare those two histories. Because, um, you know, memory, memory does funny things to our recollections. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so if you want to learn more about our project, um, you can just go to our website at www.foxfire.org slash journal, and that'll take you to our blog. You might have to scroll down a little bit because we, we are putting out a lot of material right now, but it's called the COVID-19 Oral History Project. And if you go to that particular blog post, it has links to our um, sort of our release form um, and our instructions for how to submit your your recollections um and we've been getting in uh they've been coming in sort of waves interestingly enough we got a lot from 
the Chapel Hill area of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm imagining students, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but also places like Charlotte and Cary, North Carolina. Um, so we're hoping to get more from Western North Carolina and um, Northeast Georgia and, and those regions of, of Southern Appalachia. Excellent. Thank you so much, TJ. Uh, Listeners, I have been speaking with TJ Smith, editor of Fox Fire Story, Oral Tradition in Southern Appalachia, published by our friends at Anchor. A reminder that you can get Fox Fire Story with free shipping from www.quailridgebooks.com, along with any other books that you would like. TJ, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, Jason, thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Once again, I would like to thank T.J. Smith for joining me. Copies of Foxfire Story can be purchased at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get three months of audiobooks for the price of one. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'.